Honorable Chief Justice and Associate Justices of the Supreme Court of North Carolina. Oh yes, oh yes, oh yes, the Supreme Court of North Carolina has resumed sitting for the dispatch of business. God save the state and this honorable court. Good afternoon. Next case is Reynolds Douglas versus Turkhart. We'll hear from the appellant. May it please the court. My name is Michael Lord and I represent the defendant appellate, Carrie Turhart. With leave from your honor, I'd like to reserve five minutes for rebuttal. Nearly five years ago, Ms. Turhart, a transplant from California, sought to buy her new home in North Carolina. Instead, she became enmeshed in a lawsuit, her own version of Charles Dickinson's Bleak House. From humble origins as a small claims action, this matter implicates every citizen's constitutional right to petition the courts for redress. Reversing the judgment of the trial court will preserve the common law tradition that each party is responsible for its, his, or her attorney's fees. Plaintiff Appley was not entitled to an award of attorney's fees for each of the reasons identified by the dissent below. As a threshold matter, the seller, Ms. Douglas, cannot show that the fee shifting provision in the party's agreement was triggered. The clear and plain language of paragraph 1E gives a contractual right to reimbursement for attorney's fees to the prevailing party only in an action to recover the earnest money deposit held in escrow. There is no similar contractual right to recover attorney's fees incurred in an action to recover the due diligence fee. That contractual distinction makes perfect sense. Remember that the earnest money deposit would demonstrate that the buyer, Mr. Hark, was sufficiently serious about buying the property to allow Ms. Douglas and her husband to take the property off the market while the transaction proceeded to closing. The deposit payable to the escrow agent would be credited for the benefit of Mr. Hark at closing. If the sale did not close, the parties would have to agree on how that deposit would be dispersed by the escrow agent. Absent an agreement, the escrow agent would retain the funds pending a judicial declaration. The fee shifting clause provides an incentive for each party, the buyer and the seller, to act reasonably as to how the escrowed funds should be dispersed. In contrast, the due diligence fee is generally non-refundable and it is paid directly to the seller because the seller has both the possession of the fee and a clear legal right to it there are no legitimate grounds for instituting a legal action, and thus there's no reason to provide a contractual disincentive to litigation. Here, Ms. Douglas sued in district court for the breach of the agreement. She sought recovery of the due diligence fee, liquidated damages, compensatory damages in the amount of $9,000, plus attorney's fees and court costs. She could not and did not prevail on a claim for the earnest money deposit. Ms. 
Douglas had declared that the agreement was terminated before, before the earnest money deposit was even due to be tendered. There was no earnest money deposit to recover. Rather, the trial court awarded Ms. Douglas $4,500 as liquidated damages for Ms. Turhark's breach of the agreement by failing to tender the due diligence fee. The district court simply followed the contractual formula for calculating liquidated damages. That is the sum of two numbers, the amount equal to the due diligence fee, $2,000, and the amount equal to the earnest money deposit, $2,500. The trial court erred in allowing attorney's fees when the agreement didn't authorize them. This error is dispositive of this appeal. We don't need to get into the thicket of statutory interpretation. A simple per curiam reversal for the first reason identified by the dissent is the best and most appropriate disposition of this appeal. I'd like now to turn to the three statutory interpretation reasons for reversal. Again, something that we can avoid by following the first reason identified by the dissent. So those three reasons. First one, what we have is a contract for the sale of a single family residence. It is not a financial debt instrument within the meaning of section 6-21.2. That statute covers promissory notes, conditional sale contracts, and similar acknowledgments of debt. Here, the agreement was to buy a home for $250,000 through a combination of borrowed funds and Mr. Hark's own funds. Neither the due diligence fee nor the earnest money deposit were financing devices. To be very clear, the only financing instrument was outside the buyer-seller transaction. It was the mortgage that Ms. Turhark needed to secure from a third-party lender. I'm sorry to interrupt you, Mr. Lord, but the Court of Appeals majority said that the agreement evidenced a legally enforceable obligation for a defendant to pay the due diligence fee and earnest money deposit, not the underlying contract. What's wrong with that analysis? Well, the, the analysis basically collapses the inquiry under the statute. So instead of looking at the agreement, which is a residential real estate contract, according to its own terms, the Court of Appeals took the view that a promise to pay money, in this instance, a due diligence fee, and also they pointed out to the earnest money deposit. So a pure promise to pay money was ipso facto a note, a conditional sales contract, or other evidence of indebtedness. So instead of having a, a thorough analysis of whether this is something like the commercial lease that was at issue in Stillwell, 
this was just simply kind of a rote analysis. There's a promise to pay. It was written and it was signed by the person who promised to pay. That's the outcome of the Court of Appeals. So it, it becomes basically this, this exception, other evidence of indebtedness becomes such a big exception to the general rule that it, it, it swallows what we all know is the American rule against fee shifting. It can't be that easy to have a contract that allows fee shifting. I, I'm, it, just, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I just want to follow up on your reference to Stillwell because I understand that the debt at issue is different, but the language of our court in that opinion seems um, pretty clear. Um, the court said that we hold that the term evidence of indebtedness in this statute has reference to any printed or written instrument signed or otherwise executed by the obligors, which evidences on its face a legally enforceable obligation to pay money. So why isn't the contract here, why doesn't it fit that definition which we established in that case? I think, Your Honor, that we're looking at the tail end of the reasons put out in the statute for fee shifting. So it begins first with a note, a conditional sales contract, and then we get to the operative language, other evidence of indebtedness. So this court in Stillwell did define it exactly as you quoted it. Our position is that it must be read in conjunction with the other ones. So other 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 evidence of indebtedness must be like excuse me excuse me just a second mr lloyd just to, lord just to uh make sure i'm following you are you saying that even though you have agreed that justice earls stated the definition correctly that the sentence that she read to you is not the sum total of the definition of an evidence of indebtedness no your honor i do, I do think it is the sum total what i'm saying is that i believe we need to, to read it in context so if if it if the def if a contract to pay money is other evidence of indebtedness and there's nothing more that you don't look to the context of the transaction you don't look to the parties who are involved you don't look at that other things then the exception to the american rule against fee shifting has been swallowed up there's there's no limit then so do you, do you, do you, I mean, you, there's no question here that we have, first of all, a printed, a printed or a written instrument, right? Correct. Secondly, there's no question, but that it was signed or otherwise executed by the obligor, right? That's correct. No dispute, Your Honor. So it evident, why doesn't it evidence a legally enforceable obligation to pay money, i.e. the due diligence fee and the liquid? the liquidated damages that you've referred to. And I, I apologize for not being able to articulate this as, as clearly as possible, but, but if, if that's simply it, that's the beginning and the end of the analysis, then every promise to pay money becomes an opportunity for fee shifting. And I don't believe that was the import of the decision. And I think if we just, if we look at just the facts of the case, the facts distinguish Stillwell 
from the case before the court today. And still, so, it, has, it, so is it your contention that if there is a factual distinction between the the contractual instrument at issue in Stillwell and the facts of the case that are before us, uh, we have to limit this definition to make to to instances like the factual situation in, in Stillwell? I, I think all cases, uh, all general rules out of cases are dependent on upon the facts. I understand that this court makes pronouncements so that both practitioners and the lower courts can, can follow what the law has been articulated by this court. But I think it is extremely important when we look at an instrument to decide whether Fee shifting should be involved. You look at it at the context of Stillwell, where we have sophisticated parties. It involves a commercial transaction. The contract required installment or recurring payments. And the, the one party, the lessee, had possession and operated dominion over the piece of equipment. Those types of factors cry out that that type of instrument, the lease, is like a conditional sales contract and is like a promissory note. Whereas here we have a, a pure commercial transaction between someone who owns a home and wants to, to sell it to the buyer who wants to buy the home. There is no recurring type of payments. These are payments and, and they're fees. They're, the due diligence fee is paid for the opportunity to walk through the property and inspect it. It's, so, so is, it, is it your contention then that an evidence of indebtedness has to be has to involve a recurring payment? Something along those lines that that makes it like a note or makes it like a conditional sales contract. Doesn't the statute also require that the writing itself, the evidence of indebtedness provide? For the payment of attorney's fees, so it's it's only when the parties have signed something saying that they understand they there is a there could be this fee shifting provision, and it's evidence of indebtedness that that the statute would apply. I, I believe those are two separate inquiries, Justice Earls. First, the statute says statute six point twenty one point two says that the contract itself must provide. Or fee shifting. And so that's that's just a contractual matter between the parties. But this court and all courts who have looked at the issue have said it doesn't matter how well written or how well stated a contract says that fee shifting occurs. That's just one element of the case. The next element does it fit inside the exception of a promissory note, a conditional sales contract or other evidence of indebtedness. So there are a number of contracts out there that says this is covered by section 21.2. But the parties can't, by their own agreement, force it into the statutory exception. That is a decision by a reviewing court to decide whether it's like or kind of the other types of financial instruments. And so there are cases, even though it says so in the contract, that the courts have said, no, it's not. It is outside the purview of the of the statute. And what I, I'm I think this is, to be frank with the court, not the best vehicle 
on which to to really decide the Stillwell issue of other evidence of indebtedness simply because it was raised for the first time on appeal by the Court of Appeals and it wasn't decided in the first instance by the trial court. It really hasn't been developed. This isn't the case I would submit to this court to really look at Stillwell and decide is there a logical endpoint to the description of what is other evidence of indebtedness. I would simply suggest to this court that a residential real estate contract is outside of that. And then basically signal or, or tell the bar that where that end line is for Stillwell is still an issue to be decided. But at this point, we can say what's definitely outside of that and what definitely should be outside of that is a, is a customer transaction such as a real estate uh, offer to, to purchase. Because it doesn't implicate the other things that you would normally find in a note or a conditional sales contract. This is a quintessential consumer transaction that if this court says it falls within the statute, you have taken what normally is an everyday transaction between an owner and a seller, and frankly, will weaponize it as an issue now that you've put attorney's fees on the table. And that is just, in our view, any inappropriate for this type of transaction. Council, let, let me make sure I, I understand. Are, are you saying that uh, any sale of residential property would be a would not be a commercial transaction, thus taking it outside the scope of six twenty one point two? Your Honor, to be to be absolutely clear, I would say that uh, every offer to purchase and contract using the standard form two T that's what it goes as. Uh, this particular agreement was the version in 2017. I understand that the form has been revised to, to 2021. Um, and I would say, yes, I, I think that could be a, a clear rule that uh, a sale of a house between two, two otherwise consumers uh, falls outside the scope of section 21.2. Six dash twenty one point two. Let me follow up on that. Is there? I'm looking at the statute, and I'm I'm trying to see if there's any language in the statute itself that would um, give authority to to create that kind of exception. Can you point me to anything like that in the statute Again, itself? I would just begin with the statute itself. It begins with the language that I. Uh, stated before, which is simply an obligation to pay attorney's fees in any note, conditional sales contract, or other evidence of indebtedness. So a, a, a simple promise to pay money. Courts have universally understood that that's not enough. There has to be the promise plus. There has to be a promise plus. What's that plus? That is the subject of a lot of litigation. Well, here, why isn't it's not why isn't a signed um, document here just evidence of the obligation to pay 
the, the fees that the Court of Appeals specified that I asked you about at the very beginning. Because a due diligence fee is not like paying principal and interest on a note. A due diligence fee is not like a conditional sales contract. Are you saying it's not owed? It's certainly owed, but it's it's not the type of obligation that is similar to in in nature or design as a note. This this is the statutory exception to the American rule. Well, so is an IOU um, an evidence of indebtedness? Yes, yes, because you basically loan money. So that that an IOU is a whole lot different than I want to buy your house. Well, again, I'm 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 looking for something in the statute that would that would carve out the exception that you're you're arguing for, and I, I'm um, I'm not seeing it. Um, it looks like the language or other evidence of indebtedness is intended to be broad. And it, any reason to think that's not the case? From the language of the statute? Well, that's that's certainly what this court has stated in Stillwell was that this was a remedial statute that needed to be given a a broad interpretation. I, it's probably it's too late in the day to argue against that, but I do suggest to the court that there's another way to look at that, which is simply remember that this is an exception to the rule. And in most instances, exceptions are given stricter type of construction. And that type of stricter type of construction is, is whatever other evidence of indebtedness is, is it similar to of the same nature as a note or a conditional sales contract? And you will, you'll find that decision, um, I believe, in footnote five of our opening brief. So other courts have, have looked at this issue and, and haven't considered an exception to be something that is given a canon of construction to be read broadly. Again, I understand that this court has spoken in Stillwell and uh, that it was supposed to be read broadly. You will see in any number of lower court decisions that that same thought is repeated over and over again to the point what what we're suggesting is that the exception has swallowed the rule there, that every contract in which uh, money is supposed to change hands has now become a note conditional sales contract or other evidence of indebtedness that is uh, a sea change in fee shifting so I want to understand um, what your first argument, you started out telling us we don't even have to reach this question because the fee shifting wasn't triggered in this particular instance because the, what, the, what the trial court awarded was liquidated damages on the um, earnest money and what the, I'm sorry, liquidated damages on the um, uh, Um, not the earnest money, but the other part, I'm sorry, the other part of the payment. But, but if I'm understanding your argument correctly, um, you are in this, 
with regard to the statute, you're saying that the parties could not contract to provide for attorney's fees in the event that there was an action to recover the, the, the earnest money. Well, yes, Justice. So the, the threshold argument is that the lawsuit that we're talking about did not involve the earnest money deposit. That is the only contingency, the only scenario under which the contract allows for fee shifting. So if we stop the analysis there, we're finished. If we go further, then we go into the statute. And I, I guess my question is, how do we stop the analysis there if what you're arguing is that the statute doesn't apply to this contract at all? The, the, the statute makes it an element that if uh, I'm referring to section 6-21.2, it says, if such note contract or other evidence of indebtedness um, you know, allows for it. So the first element is that the contract has to allow for the attorney's fees shifting. And certainly that was contracted for in this in this particular contract that's before the court but it was only triggered in one instance and that is recovery of the earnest money deposit remember the earnest money deposit was never paid so it could never be recovered so the only instance where the contract would say fees are available wasn't satisfied so we should stop there if for some reason this court decides to go forward and say yes the contract language was triggered a second inquiry is necessary and that is despite what you know the parties can agree you know it's it's you have the ability to agree to anything subject to court approval and this is one area where the parties can agree to fee shifting all they want, but it, it may not be enforced by the court, not because it's poorly drafted. It's just simply because it doesn't fit within a statutory exception. You must have a statutory exception in order to recover attorney's fees. So that's that would be the second set of analysis and what we've been discussing. Does it fit within the scope of the, the uh, statute? And our argument, it, it does not because it's not like in kind just like the argument put forth by the dissent. But again, the first argument by the dissent, the, thir the threshold issue was that even though the parties contracted to fee shift, it was only for one particular type of lawsuit, and that lawsuit wasn't brought. Council, did you intend to re reserve any rebuttal time? Thank you. We'll hear from the appellee. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. May it please the court. My name is David Omer, and I represent the plaintiff appellee, Ms. Dawn Douglas, in this matter. Rule 16B of our Rules of Appellate Procedure provides that review by this court based upon the existence of a dissenting opinion in the Court of Appeals is limited to those issues for which three distinct elements have been satisfied. And those elements are that number one, the issue must be set out not just mentioned, but specifically set out as the basis for the dissenting opinion. 
Number two, that issue must be recited in the appellant's notice of appeal. And number three, the issue must be properly presented uh, in the appellant's new brief. The dissenting opinion, which was written by Judge Murphy, set forth three or potentially four issues which form the basis of that opinion. And those issues were number one, whether this agreement does permit the recovery of attorney's fees. Number two, whether the statute, section 6-21.2, applies to this agreement, or more specifically, whether this agreement constitutes a note or a conditional sales contract uh, or another evidence of indebtedness. Closely related to that was the issue of whether this agreement meets with the purpose of this statute. And then the final issue was whether the attorneys of feed award in this case should have been capped under the statute. The notice of appeal that was filed by the appellant implicated three issues. And the first issue was whether there would be a public policy effect flowing from the majority opinion in the court of appeals. Number two was whether the agreement constitutes an evidence of indebtedness. And number three was whether the award should have been capped. So even as of that point in time, the only two issues that were common to both the dissenting opinion and the notice of appeal, and therefore the only issues which could properly lie pursuant to rule 16b, were the evidence of indebtedness issue and the statutory cap issue. However, when the appellant submitted her new brief, she attempted to bring in a number of issues which had never been argued or decided or even mentioned, uh, not only before the Court of Appeals, but at any point previously in this case, neither by Ms. Terhark herself, nor by any of the attorneys that she retained to represent her in this matter. So Rule 16b would tend to prohibit review of those new issues because they've, again, never been mentioned before now at any point. Certainly pursuant to Rule 2, both appellate courts, including this one, do have general supervisory powers such that the requirements of Rule 16b could be suspended as a matter of appellate grace or in order to prevent manifest injustice to a party. But to do that in this case would certainly afford no grace whatsoever to the appellee, Ms. Douglas, who uh, did not wish to incur any attorney's fees in this matter at all, and who would have been perfectly content to have had this case resolved four years ago before the small claims court. So suspending these requirements of Rule 16b in this matter would operate as a manifest injustice to Ms. Douglas. I would add that this court has historically disapproved of and has disencouraged in no uncertain terms both appellants and their counsel from attempting to bring new or additional issues before this court without first securing the appropriate authorization. Uh, the appellant did attempt to bring in additional issues through a motion for discretionary review. That motion was ultimately denied. She also could have sought to bring those issues in by applying for a writ of certiorari, which she has evidently chosen not to do. Instead, the appellant is making a blatant attempt to swap horses on appeal and to circumvent the requirements of Rule 16b entirely in order to bring in issues which, again, are, are entirely novel in these proceedings. So for these issues to be taken up now uh, would be highly prejudicial to Ms. Douglas, who, again, did not wish to incur any attorney's fees and who would have been happy to have this claim resolved in small claims court. Turning to the issue of whether this agreement does constitute an evidence of indebtedness, our position certainly would be that it does. As discussed by the majority opinion, the language of this statute provides that attorney's fees may be recovered upon any note, conditional sales contract, or other evidence of indebtedness. The primary point of contention in this case certainly revolves around whether this agreement is an evidence of indebtedness for purposes 
of this statute. And the landmark guidance, as discussed at length in the majority opinion, is the Stillwell test, which tells us that the term evidence of indebtedness is meant to refer to any writing which is signed by the obligor and which evidence is on its face a legally enforceable obligation to pay money. This agreement certainly is a writing. It is signed not only by the obligor, but by both parties. And it does provide that as of the moment of the agreement's execution, the buyer is legally obligated to pay money to the seller at the very least in the form of a due diligence fee. At the expiration of the due diligence period or in the event of a breach by the buyer, a second legally enforceable obligation arises in the form of the earnest money deposit. And then finally, when and if the contract is fully performed, a third obligation arises in the form of the balance of the purchase price, which is to be paid by the buyer to the seller. So this agreement is a writing, it is signed by the obligor, and it does evidence on its face at least one and potentially as many as three separate legally enforceable obligations to pay money. And for that reason, it does meet squarely with the Stillwell test. Both the dissenting opinion and the appellant's new brief have, have taken the apparent position that this statute is only meant to be applied in commercial context. And while I will concede that the application uh, of this statute has been primarily in commercial settings, I would disagree strongly that it is meant to be limited to application in commercial settings. And I take that position for a number of reasons. Number one, again, the use of the word any in the statute cuts sharply against the notion that any exception that doesn't appear in this statute should be read into an interpretation of it. Number two, because this statute is remedial in nature, because it is meant to confer a remedy upon an aggrieved party to a contract, the statute is meant to be construed broadly. Number three, and as referenced in our new brief, there have been multiple examples of the statute being applied in contexts which were purely non-commercial. For instance, the seller's matter that we referred to from 1984 was a matter in which a set of HOA covenants were deemed to be an evidence of indebtedness um, pursuant to this statute. The Christ v. Christ matter from 2001 concerned a set of promissory notes between divorcing parties and attorney's fees were awarded in that case uh, in a context which was purely non-commercial. Number four, we have a statute in North Council, Carolina. I'm, I'm sorry. Um, how do you get around the language in, in Stillwell um, where, where the court says it would appear that uh, some of the purposes underlying the enactment of 6-21.2 are to simplify, clarify, and modernize the law governing commercial transactions? Well, I do agree that that is one person. Uh, I believe that this statute has uh, a number of main purposes and a number of intents behind it. One of the other intents is to validate a debt collection remedy that has been agreed upon between the parties. And this agreement squarely meets with that purpose as well. We have a second statute in North Carolina at section 6-21.6, which by its terms is specifically meant to apply to business contracts, which is expressly defined in the statutory language as contracts which were entered into primarily for business or commercial purposes. If section 6-21.2 were only meant to apply in commercial context, we certainly would not need both of these statutes. They would be very much at odds with each other and they would be repetitive of one another. And finally, I would just add that the latest revision of this offer to purchase um, and agreement does include language that specifically states that this agreement is an evidence of indebtedness. 
So turning to the issue of whether the statutory cap should have applied in this case. At the heart of this issue is the very crucial distinction between obtaining a judgment on one hand and defending that judgment against appeal. On the other hand, the statute does unquestionably impose a, a cap on recoverable fees. However, there is also a, a wealth of case law. Much of which was cited in our new brief holding that where a litigant is entitled to any amount of attorney's fees in obtaining her judgment. She is also entitled to recover all attorney's fees that were incurred in defending that judgment. And the same case law explains the policy considerations that support this precedent. And that is that without a safeguard in place, it would be economically infeasible for a plaintiff to take measures to preserve the judgment that she has obtained. So, in other words, a defendant in any lower value case, such as this one would be not only allowed. But potentially even encouraged to drag out the proceedings to waste judicial time and resources along the way. Either with the effect of, or for the express purpose of pricing out, so to speak, the plaintiff from recovering. And in that case, plaintiffs in any lower value case, such as this one. Would be at constant risk of having to spend more in attorney's fees than what they would stand to recover. And this would have a significant chilling effect on a plaintiff's ability or incentive to either obtain her judgment or to defend that judgment against appeal. So, in this case, if Ms. Douglas had incurred her fees in obtaining her judgment before the district court, then the cap would certainly apply. Uh, however, that is not the case in this matter. Ms. Douglas obtained her judgment in the small claims court without incurring any attorney's fees because she was pro se, even though she would have been entitled to at least some measure of fees at that point. All of the fees that she did incur were in connection with defending her judgment. Again, Ms. Douglas didn't incur any fees whatsoever until after the second appeal and the counterclaim filed by the appellant. So because Ms. Douglas incurred all of her fees not in obtaining her judgment, but in defending it, clear case law precedent tells us that she is entitled to recover the full measure of her attorney's fees in this matter. Turning to the issue and sorry, if I, I can just uh, interrupt. Um, I understand your argument that this wasn't preserved by the appellant, but the but the dissent did make this distinction between the due diligence fee and the earnest money fee, and and did say that that the um, attorney's fees award here wasn't proper because the contract provided only for attorney's fees in an action to recover the earnest money and not the due diligence fee. So what what is your response to that position in the dissent? My response to that would be uh, that Ms. Douglas's intent from the beginning of this case has been to recover all amounts that are due her, including due diligence, including the earnest money deposit. And candidly, I, I think the most compelling evidence of that is the fact that she is still here. After four years, after enough appeals to progress this case through practically every level of the judicial system here in North Carolina, at no point has she thrown up her hands and said, I give up, I quit. That's it. I'm not going to pursue this anymore. She's still here. And the reason for that is that her intent from the beginning has again been to recover all amounts that are due to her. With that being said, to to answer your question more directly. Go ahead, Mr. Omer. I'm sorry. I thought you had answered it, but please, please finish. I apologize for interrupting you. I apologize, Justin Servant. With that being said, to answer this question directly on the head, the question is not ultimately whether Ms. Douglas ever sued to recover the earnest money deposit. We, we know very clearly that she did. 
uh, from the record. The only question is whether she did that from the beginning in small claims court or whether she did so for the first time before the district court after the second appeal. Regardless of what the answer to that question is, the effect is that Ms. Douglas did sue to recover the earnest money deposit. And as a result, she did become entitled to at least some measure of attorney's fees at that point. And because that's the case, we know that she also became entitled to the full measure of the attorney's fees that she incurred in defending her judgment against appeal. So much depends on whether Ms. Douglas sued to recover that earnest money deposit when she filed her original complaint in the small claims division. And I candidly do not specifically know the answer to that question. I don't think the record gives us much information to answer that question. Uh, it's true that she did write the amount of $2,000 on the complaint um, in light of the fact that I, I know with a lot of confidence what her intent has been from the beginning. I'm not entirely certain as to why she did that. Uh, under the circumstances, I believe it's entirely possible that, that she was under the impression that she had to recover the due diligence fee first before she could pursue the earnest money deposit. And if that is indeed the case, then she would not have had the opportunity to bring the earnest money deposit up before the first appeal by Ms. Turhark removed this case to arbitration. However, even if this court does determine that she only sued to recover the due diligence fee in small claims court, the fact remains that the amended complaint, which was filed in the district court, did explicitly seek recovery of the earnest money deposit. And that can be found at page 31 of the record on appeal. So it would have been at that point, at the very latest, that Ms. Douglas would have become entitled to recovery of some amount of attorney's fees. Under that set of facts, and if that is the way that this case ends up being decided, we would concede that Ms. Douglas's entitlement to attorney's fees would have been capped at 15% of the amount in controversy before the district court. However, that would require a determination that she did not attempt to recover the earnest money deposit before the small claims court, which I, again, don't believe the record gives us a clear answer on. Even if Ms. Douglas's fees are capped at the district court level, the fact would remain that she is still entitled to the full measure of attorney's fees that she incurred at the appellate level. So breaking that down just a, a little bit further, if Ms. Okay, Douglas was- and, and help, help me with that now because the trial court awarded $13,000 in attorney's fees at, at the district court level, right? That is correct. The trial court found that she had sued for both the due diligence fee and the earnest money deposit in small terms. Are, are you conceding that the uh, 15% rule should have applied in the district court? That's an excellent question. I'm, I, I appreciate you asking that. Our position say, is that what, what would the what would the answer to that would be? So th this is why this distinction is so important between obtaining the judgment on one hand and defending the judgment on the other hand. Our position is that that fifteen percent cap applies in obtaining the judgment. Right. Even if that percent is capped in obtaining the judgment, any fees that are incurred in defending the judgment are something that the plaintiff is also going to be entitled to. So well, our does position that, is that, that, Ms. Does that leave you in a position that you were entitled to 15% of the a cap of 15% of the recovery in the district court plus fees on appeal? Our position is that Ms. Douglas obtained her judgment at small claims court. And that that would have been the point had she had attorney's fees that the amount would have been capped. Everything that she did incur after that was incurred on appeal 
which subject to the Boykin holding and its progeny would indicate that she is entitled to all of those fees that she incurred on appeal, which would have meant the district court. She only only sought recovery of the earnest money at the district court, not at the uh, small claims court level, right? So that's where I think there's a a little bit of a lack of clarity in the record. Uh, It is true that she did write the amount of $2,000 on her small claims complaint. Um, Certainly there could be an interpretation there that she was only seeking recovery of the due diligence fee. Um, I am personally very confident that Ms. Douglas has intended to seek all amounts due her at all relevant times. But if the court does determine that she sued for the due diligence fee only at the small claims level, then that would certainly lead to a conclusion that she was not entitled to attorney's fees at that level, and she would then be obtaining her judgment for the first time as opposed to defending it before the district court, because that's when she explicitly asked to recover the earnest money deposit. At which point she would be entitled to 15% of the amount recovered? Under that set of facts, if that is the way that this court decides that specific issue, then we would concede that she would be capped at the district court level. However, she would also be entitled to recover the entirety of the attorney's fees that she incurred at the appellate level. Of course, we have no idea of what relation attorney's fees at the appellate level bears to the $13,000 amount that the trial court actually awarded. I believe that that would necessitate a remand to the trial court for a determination of what those fees would be, but you, you are correct. Okay. What, what, you know, ultimately though, your position, your, your primary position is that fees were awarded at the district court level and that anything after that is incurred is, is recoverable because it was defending the initial small claims court recovery. I'm sorry. I think I said district court when I meant small claims court. That is correct. Uh, Our contention is is that she obtained the judgment at small claims. Everything after that was defending the judgment, which means that all of the attorney's fees that she incurred were incurred in connection with defending the judgment rather than obtaining the judgment. Does that answer your question, Justice Irvin? I apologize. Yes, it does. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I would would ask you more if I didn't think I understood the answer. I appreciate that. Thank you, sir. With my remaining time, I'd like to speak to the issue of, of statutory notice uh, very briefly without, without knowing whether this is an issue that the court intends to take up. Uh, again, this is an issue that should have been brought up ideally before the trial court or at the very latest before the court of appeals. Had this been brought up earlier, it could have been argued, it could have been decided. Uh, if necessary, the issue could have even been rectified if it had been brought up at the appropriate time. Instead, what the appellant has elected to do is to allow this issue to languish for four years knowing that these fees were accruing before trying to bring this issue in before this court at this very late juncture. The issue of notice pursuant to this particular statute has been reviewed on 33 occasions that I'm aware of. And on all 33 of those occasions, the issue has originated at the very latest before the court of appeals. On not one instance that I'm aware of has this specific issue originated before this court. So for this issue to be reviewed now, by this court at this very late juncture would indeed be an unprecedented occurrence in the history of North Carolinian jurisprudence. Uh, Again, we are fully aware of the court's general supervisory powers to allow a new issue like this to be taken up, but to do so in this case would again operate as a grave injustice to Ms. Douglas. With that being said, there are two reasons why notice was not provided in this case. Number one, 
is that Ms. Reynolds Douglas was a pro se plaintiff again when she filed her small claims complaint. She was a pro se plaintiff again in arbitration after the first appeal. So Ms. Douglas had no reason to provide notice at that point in time because she had not incurred any attorney's fees. And moreover, she had no reason to know that she would incur attorney's fees over what at least began as a, a fairly straightforward dispute. My office did not become involved in this matter until approximately four to five months after that small claims complaint was filed. And because one of the stated purposes of the notice requirement, and indeed of the statute in general, is to allow the debtor one last chance to avoid litigation, that purpose could not have been effectuated in this case because the matter had already been in litigation for months. Uh, I am not personally aware of any occasion on which this notice requirement has been applied such a significant amount of time into existing litigation. Certainly there are a small number of outlier cases in which notice has been provided three days or four days after the complaint was filed. However, I'm again not aware of any situations in which a pro se plaintiff has filed their own complaint, handled their own matter for a period of months, and then retained a, an attorney due to appeals and due to a counterclaim who was then required to send that notice in the middle of the litigation. Secondly, much of the reason why I was retained was to defend the identical lawsuit, which has been characterized as a counterclaim, that the appellant filed back in small claims court while this matter was pending before the district court. And that counterclaim can be found at page 14 of the appendix to our new brief. Established case law tells us that this notice requirement is not applicable where the plaintiff is forced into the position of having to employ counsel, not only to collect her own claim, but also to protect herself against the defendant's claim. And that's a precedence that we see in cases such as the Thornburg Hosiery Company case from 1987, as well as the Finch v. Campus Habitat case from 2012. Um, as in both of those matters, we did file an answer and a counterclaim uh, in response to Ms. Terhark's counterclaim in, in the small claims court. That document does not appear in the record on appeal because this issue had not been implicated uh, at the time that the record on appeal was compiled. But we filed that document on February 22nd of 2018. And in that document, in addition to the amended complaint that we filed before the district court, we did specifically ask for the recovery of attorney's fees. So as in, both of these matters, the appellant was well aware of our intent to seek attorney's fees as early on as February of 2018. With my remaining time, I, I want to address two more very brief issues. The first one is the abuse of discretion standard. Awards of attorney's fees are reviewed to an abuse of discretion standard, and this is a very high standard, and it requires the appellant to establish that the trial court's decision was either manifestly unsupported by reason or otherwise that it was so arbitrary that it could not have been the product of a reasoned decision. And that simply is not the case here. Judge Mangum's decision in the district court was supported by a very clear thought process. He saw the existence of a contract. He saw the occurrence of a breach. He saw both a contractual and a statutory right to recover fees upon said breach. And finally, he saw that all of the fees that were incurred were incurred not in obtaining the judgment, but in defending it. And as a result, his award was fully supported by reason. It certainly was not arbitrary in any sense of the word. And because of that, the abuse of discretion standard is not met in this case, and this award should remain undisturbed. Finally, in his dissenting opinion, Judge Murphy stated very early on, I believe in the second sentence, that the majority opinion would have a sweeping effect on the public policy surrounding the recoverability of attorney's fees in North Carolina. 
However, the greater public policy effect and certainly the more detrimental public policy effect would be felt if the majority opinion were not affirmed. And that's because this would again open the door for defendants predominantly in lower value cases like this one to price out their plaintiffs by causing their fees to exceed their recoveries by appealing at every opportunity and by wasting the maximum possible amount of judicial resources. On the other hand, as stated in our new brief, affirming the majority opinion would simply operate to allow contracting parties meaningful access to the remedies for which they have bargained. And for that reason, among many others, uh, our request would be that the majority opinion be affirmed. Thank you. Thank you, counsel rebuttal. Thank you, your honor. I'd like to make three points before concluding. First point is that there is no procedural barrier toward addressing the issues that were brought forward in the dissent. The fact that we're discussing this is, is fairly shocking to me. It must be remembered that nowhere at the trial court level did the plaintiff provide the court with any notice that attorney's fees were being sought under a specific statutory exception. Because remember, a contract alone doesn't entitle a party to attorney's fees. That contract must fit within a statutory exception. Nowhere before the district court did counsel identify for the district court that section 6-21.2 was in play. The very first time that statute was identified was in the opening brief at the Court of Appeals. Ms. Terhark was sandbagged. There was no opportunity to, to address all those issues that were brought up for the very first time in the plaintiff appellee's brief. For the plaintiff appellee to claim foul is, again, just shocking. This was invited error by plaintiff appellee. They can't be rewarded with that. The second point goes back to an earlier discussion we had as far as what is the logical end to Stillwell. I do want the court to know, we've cited it in our brief, but I think it's important that the Court of Appeals has decided this issue, has decided the issue in the Folds case, in which the panel said, we know of no basis in North Carolina law for the allowance of attorney's fees in a dispute arising out of a contract for the sale of real estate, as is, in, as is involved in this case. So the issue has been decided, has been decided against plaintiff appellee. And it does show that there has to be an endpoint to the Stillwell definition of evidence of indebtedness. And it's also important to remember where this all arises out of. Ms. Terhark is, is forced into a position of defending a contract that, that was not hers. As pointed out in the brief, this contract for the sale of the property was something that she did not authorize. When she filled out the offer or, or said that she was fine with it, it did not include 
Thank you, Council. I believe your time's expired. Thank you. Thank you, Madam Clerk. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. The Supreme Court of North Carolina will be in recess for 15 minutes. God save the state and this honorable court.